died. He, he died in a bizarre gardening accident. They see us on stage with tight trousers. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening, the size. Review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said shit sandwich. You can survive on your old man's money. You can survive on your old man's money. It's <laughs> that Hall and Oates. That's Hall and Oates, well, yeah, one of their biggest Which one? Rich Girl, it's called. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. You're out of touch. You're out of time. I've been listening to a bit of them today, refreshing my memory. Because your kiss, your kiss is on my list. Because your kiss, your kiss, I can't resist. Because your kiss is on my list. Oh, yeah. Sure, uh, our listeners has not, not tuned in to hear us murdering Hall and Oak. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded quite insulting to your singing, Dave. You were, you were very good. I don't mind, me. Jesus Christ. I do enough singing for my living anyway. So it doesn't really affect me one way or the other these days. Oh, Anyone wants to criticise me, they can. I don't mind. Are you all right, Lud? Yeah, yeah, a bit. Well, I've had a great week because, you know, my work has been going very well, which mainly involves singing. You know, not Hall and Oates, though, I might add. Well, you want to get them into the uh, set list. I would happily do um, the Kiss List or whatever it's called. You know, I love that song. Because your kiss, your kiss is on my list. It's a great tune. Oh, here she comes. Look out, boy, she'll chew you up. Oh, here she comes. She's a (laughs) man-eater. You know what you should have said, Dave, when I said get some Hall and Oates into your set list? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should have said, yeah. oh, God, do I can go for that. Oh, yeah, oh. no, I should have said that. Oh, God, do. I can go for that. Oh, no, no can do. <laughs> I know, you're right. I missed a trick there, Lee. I missed a big trick. Well, never mind. I have to say, I've been watching, um, I have watched a few episodes of his video channel on YouTube, Daryl's live from Daryl's house. Yeah. Daryl Hall. And uh, it's a it's a bloody good show, to be fair. And he had I heard um, about that today, actually. He had Robert Fripp on like, the other week. Yeah. And that was phenomenal. Uh, honestly. Well, he's it, been doing loads of that with Toya, hasn't he? His wife. Oh, yeah. He does loads of crazy. We're actually stuff. touring, Dave. You could but, you get free tickets on show film first, but. <laughs> really be arsed, you know, they obviously weren't selling out. So they wanted to make it look full. I, I, is that right? Because I've, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen a couple of like. I think clips it was Manchester they were playing. Yeah, because I've seen a couple of clips of them performing live and it looks like a lot of fun what they're doing. Quite mm. a sort of diversion from Robert Fripp, but he has kind of softened round the edges a bit over the years, any Fripp, especially in recent yeah. years. And he's sort of like this, portrays himself as this sort of like eccentric grandfatherly kind of figure of British rock and roll mm-hmm. but um they did a version of Red with um Daryl Hall's band and Fripp playing obviously the lead yeah. guitar part and the shared guitar part with Daryl Hall's guitarist who is phenomenal Daryl Hall playing playing it on the grand piano and it was brilliant I have to say it was fantastic and it shows you what a brilliant musician Daryl Hall is. Yeah. And little did I know that he did a solo album with Robert Fripp in the early 1980s, which he calls 
his prog rock album. Right? Yeah. And I've heard a couple of tracks from it. Quite interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. It's got interesting tracks on it. You know, a bit more expansive. Certainly not a mainstream pop, which he was doing with John Oates, you know, which is the name of my brother-in-law, by the way. (laughs) Is it? It's my brother-in-law. It's called John Oates. Yeah. Because my wife's maiden name, obviously, is Oates. Mm. Anyway, that's sad. And also R.I.P. Shane McGowan. And fucking everyone today. There's been everyone, yeah. Time. Yeah, Alistair Darling. Hello, Darling. R.I.P. Darling. Yeah. Who's yeah. the first? Henry Kissinger. Oh, Who's yeah. Henry Kissinger. Oh, what a, what a come. Henry Kissinger. Yeah, it? it's unbelievable, isn't it? He gets to live to be 100. Yeah. That cunt gets to live to be 100. You know what I mean? There Who died are. first? Who was the first one? Was it, it's oh, it's Jimmy Corkill, for fuck's sake. Oh, fuck me. Jimmy Corkill, Dad. Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, the thing with Shane McGowan, it's one of them. You have to double take. You go, oh, is it? Was he alive? Didn't realise. <laughs> is he still alive? Amazing. It lasted that long. I mean, fucking, it was pickled like fuck, wasn't it? It was pickled, pickled to fuck. Yeah, but I think Jimmy Corkill. I was thinking, has he gone back on the horse? <laughs> but no. Uh, was Jimmy Corkill gay? That. Seemed quite a gay chap in real. He was gay, wasn't he? He was, yeah. I think he's getting. Didn't he have an affair with Fred Tolbert when they a couple? Oh my god! Oh my god! There's a there's I'm a story. Sure they were. I'm sure. Hell, that's a podcast in itself, Lee. But you know what I was thinking about? We what we need to do a podcast on as well. We really got a podcast on is theme tunes. Oh. So I really would laugh at our favourite theme tunes. Brilliant. Yeah, we can. You know? and then we can like have a go at uh, just humming them as well. You know, like Rockford Files. You did that on one podcast, Dave. You I've went, already done you that. Went, you did the extended 12-inch. <laughs> and I think I did two versions of Starsky and Hutch as well. Well, funny you should mention Starsky and Hutch, Dave, because I regularly play this amazing... Uh, I think it does series one and series three theme tunes. I'm yes. trying to it was called Richie's Funk Band or something like wow. that. Wow. Richie's Funk Team. I play it all the time. Because there was Just three listen at to least this three. This is my favourite. Yeah, it's mine. <laughs> Now, this is series three, I think, or season three. This is uh, this is fucking amazing as well. Do you know this one? They used that one on a special, that was like an hour and a half special. Yeah. And that one, I had it on tape in my old Escort, and it was when I first started driving, and I, oh, I was a maniac. I used to put it on, and there was a couple of us where you go in the car, <laughs> and I, would, I would be absolutely, I would absolutely be bombing it down all the streets, doing fucking donuts and shit in the car, like, <laughs> shit, getting really carried. Honestly, I was very lucky to not end up bloody totally in a car. Really terrible, terrible. And I actually, that, I actually thought 
I did end up in contempt. I've told this story before, haven't I? Because I got done for speeding three times in a period of a month. Because I just had this like burst of like, yes, I'm fucking driving. And I just, you know, went crazy. And the third time I was doing like 60 plus down a 30 mile an hour zone through Stretford. And it, it was like the days when the old copper had the, the gun, you know what I mean? The speed yeah. gun. And he just went like that, like lift it up, boom. And he said, I've got you. And I thought, the fucker, he's got me. And I remember coming, the, the, this copper, they used to come to the house, didn't they? And give you the bloody, a copper would yeah. come and give you a ticket. And I remember my dad going, oh, that son of mine's got a bloody speeding ticket. <laughs> oh, bloody hell. Shit, I've been driving 35 years, never had a ticket in my life. Oh, oh, oh. And I thought, you fucking two-faced cunt. I'm sorry, Dad, rest in peace. But I was saying that because I thought, you were da- you came down the M56 to get back home in your Jaguar XJS doing 115 miles an hour the other day, and you're going on about never getting done for speeding. However, that said, I ended up in court, and I nearly got ban- a ban, and I got like quite a hefty fine, like 250 quid or something, which, you know, a lot of money back then. And uh, a decent amount of money now. Um, and uh, that was it. That that uh, that okay. stopped me from being a fucking prick. <laughs> <laughs> Did your barrister put forward mitigating circumstances that you got carried away listening to Starsky Notch? Well, if only I had a barrister. Understandable, Your Honour. It's a fantastic theme <laughs> tune. I might have used that for my defence if I had a barrister. You know, I just rocked up there and made lonesome. In my bad fucking, uh, my bad top man jacket, you know, <laughs> you know, and bad, bad slacks looking terrible with a fake crappy pencil tie on the neck, you know. There's a slight link there to Hall and Oates, Dave, because I think uh, yeah, yeah. Daryl Hall sported yes. similar he casual did. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure I probably rolled up the sleeves of my jacket as well. Probably, <laughs> probably put a sweatband or two on, do you know what I mean? <laughs> That, that so back to the subject, Dave, if we can. <laughs> right. Now, the reason we're talking about Hall & Oates tonight is the shock news that yes. Daryl Hall has yes. taken out a restraining order a against restraining his order. musical partner of 51 years, John, John Oates. Indeed. We don't know the uh, detail. It's not been revealed about the detail of the restraining order, but the fell out and it seems to be the, core, the cause of the falling out seems to be that John Oates has tried to sell his half of the business. Indeed he has, yeah. Called Whole Oats. Yeah, Whole Oats, which quite, clever, I, think clever that's, that. I think that's quite a good name. Well, yeah, that was Whole, the name of their first album. Yes, Whole Oats, the name of their first album. It's, in fact, it's called Whole Oats Enterprises, which is Woe. They've called <laughs> their company Woe. Basically. He's tried to sell his half behind Daryl's back. Yes. Daryl can't believe this. And, yeah, he's fuming. Uh, he's took out... Well, he's got his lawyers onto the case to stop this. You know, I mean, you can understand his point of view. Don't know who who anyone could buy John Oates's half and do what they want with it, and I don't know, insist on making music with Daryl. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that could happen, but I don't know why he's had to go to the lengths of taking out a restraining order. And there's something really bitter going on between those two, isn't there? I wonder whether he resents the fact that. The Oates is on the writing, on the credit, you know. I think probably Daryl all thinks he, he was the, the driving force behind well, yeah. the Hall and Oates name. It has something to do with that, because it's interesting that 
and you often find this that they were never friends no uh they were merely business partners yeah and uh and, and, you know and john oates has got that like keegan-esque little fucking perm going on there <laughs> the dodgy tash yeah you know? Yeah. yeah, it looks like he's. Uh, it looks like someone out of Brookside, doesn't it? Well, it kind of looks like, um, you know, uh, Passepartout. Brookside. Yeah, well, to me, it looks a bit like sort of. Is it? Was his name Passepartout on Fantasy Island? Mister Rock, you're playing, you're playing. Jose Villachet, that's his name. That was his real name. Right? Did he have a moustache? Well, no, but if you if you imagine, because he's dead little, isn't he? So he's kind of like. Yeah. Yeah, so he's kind of like the Toulouse Lautrec of eighties uh, pop. You know, with, but with like a Keegan hairdo, a dodgy tash, you know. <laughs> but now he's had loads of Botox done, so he looks like, yeah, he looks like a freak. Now. You know, where, to, I have to say, Daryl Hall looks to me like he's sort of growing old fairly gracefully. He looks, to be fair, Daryl Hall looks pretty fucking amazing for 77. I mean, he's, he's, 70, not, he's not 77. He's days, fucking 77 he, years old. I thought he was 70. No, apparently he's 77. Because I looked it up the other day. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm going to look it up again now. Because I thought, what the hell's going on there? What kind of Alexia of youth is that? He is 77. I told you, he's 77. How do you make? How does that happen? That is amazing. It is amazing. Got all his hair still. Yeah. Because, uh, you know what, I, I, I've i got a lot of admiration for him. I love his show. It's very clever how he set it up. It's really good. Because mm. he, he has this little bit where they all have a meal together and they chew the fat about, you know stuff they've done together and then they go in this big sort of barn sort of environment and they play live and to be fair they're amazing you know the, his band is amazing and he's bloody brilliant to be yeah. fair know what he does and um the frit one was a joy really really good and the other, i tell you what the other one that i really enjoyed was glenn tilbrook from squeeze who's a brit i have to say glenn tilbrook he's a brilliant artist Still a great singer, and some of those Squeeze songs are fantastic. But they did brilliant versions of them. So if you get a chance, have a look at it. It's very, yeah, I will do. I will. It's very interesting. Yeah. I don't see John Oates doing anything like that, do you? No, it see. does sound like from what. What's John Oates doing? I don't know. You know. What did he even do when he was in the band? Well, that's it. He'd, he'd always be playing a guitar, which you could never hear. Exactly. It's always that so low in the mix, wasn't it? Yeah. Drowned out by synth and sax, but. It does appear that, like you say, Daryl Hall was the main songwriter and they never actually wrote many songs together. No, but yeah, he's, I mean, he's I have... listed on a few of the hits, though. This is the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But to what degree, you know what I mean? Mm. This is the thing, that maybe this is where the bitterness comes from because he wants... He's playing hardball, isn't he? Because he does not want to... And he's actually made a, he made a statement, didn't he, saying that it's ridiculous to sell... The publishing rights to your songs yeah you know that it would it's not something he ever wants to do he thinks it's like a real a real disaster that you should do that as an artist it's the one thing that you've got it's one thing you own you know but if you look at the people who have sold the publishing rights to the company that uh looks like they might be interested in buying the whole notes catalog um it's i think it's the same company then Bob Dylan sold his, you know, so Bob Dylan sold all his publishing rights, you know, because oh, he, got paid, cause he got paid a fortune for it, you know, more money than he could ever spend yeah, in yeah. his life. So, you know. I've been trying to think who Daryl Hall looks like uh, all day, Dave. He sort of looks a bit like Jamie Oliver, but with 
like a Patrick Swayze hairdo. He's, he's a bit like an anemic Jamie Oliver, isn't he? Because he's always looked a bit, well, especially when he's younger, he's always looked a bit like he hadn't had enough sun, a bit, a bit mm. weak. <laughs> yeah, there's one photo here, Dave. This was yeah. obviously from the 80s where yeah. he's taken the mullet to the max. He's sort of gone beyond Pat Sharp here. It looks like a lion's mane, you know, obviously cut over the ears. It's a magnificent haircut. Right. So he could find it somewhere. Do you know who he looks like? I've just realised. Do you know who he really has a look on? Especially when he's younger. He looks kind of like Macaulay Culkin looks now. Yes. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. He's got like, he has, oh, oh my God. He really has a look of Macaulay Culkin. Maybe he's his dad. Maybe he is. <laughs> yeah. But I must I did find it very hard to believe he was, uh, he was 77. It's pretty remarkable, to be mm. fair. Because he does look really good. He looks, he probably looks better now than he did in the eighties. Really yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. I mean, I was looking at some pictures of the eighties. You know, the publicity shots, and mm. they sort of look like they could be another pair of ridiculous crime fighters. <laughs> they do. It's not they? Like, it's the modern pictures of um, of John Oates that just kind of freaks me out. He's sort of like a miniature version of something from Interview with a Vampire or something. This is very odd. And in the eighties, he could have been like what could have been one of the Corkill brothers, couldn't he? Or could have been on in the eighties. Or on Scousers. Yeah, exactly on Harry Enfield. Fantastic. And look at that mullet that Daryl Hall had in the eighties. That is insane. insane. But the thing is, what strikes me is, is odd is why. You know, artists that are together, teams together, fall out. There's, there's got to be, uh, you know, there's got to be yeah, well, something very personal, I think, involved in this. And this is what we're going to be talking about, is absurd and ridiculous reasons why people get kicked out of bands or why bands yeah. split up. Um, yeah. But it did remind me a bit of the Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, yeah. Well, there's another story. Because, you know, famously, they hated each other. Well, I think there's something similar with the Simon and Garfunkel with this Hall and Oates thing, because I'm sure Paul Simon really kind of resented uh, Art Garfunkel's contribution to what well, there was no contribution, was, was there? No, very he little. No, I no mean, have you ever from... seen that interview with uh, Annie Nightingale, where she, she asks about them writing songs together and bouncing ideas, and Paul Simon looks like he's, he's going to cry. Yes, I'm so stunned at the question. His face and demeanour just change. He goes, oh, well, we don't write songs together. You know, I, I wrote all the Simon Garfunkel songs. And she goes, oh, uh, is that sort of commonly known? And he goes, yeah, yeah. I think everyone knows it apart from you, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> what terrible lack of research from Annie Nightingale. <laughs> Yeah. That she hadn't looked it she hadn't looked into anything and realised that Paul Simon wrote all the songs. Oh my Apparently god. Apparently he said he felt I was reading he he felt a bit bad a few years later about that interview, but he was actually okay. He didn't he didn't walk out or anything. Why should he feel bad about that? I, I, no, no. Because she got absolute shit for it for years yeah. on end. I'll be honest with you, mate. If it was me and I had a significant other person in a band with me, I I, I and I wrote all the songs. I would, I don't know, I don't know. I wouldn't call the band that person's name and my name. I'd, I'd have an independent, like I, I had an independent name for my band, even though my band 
when I had a band was basically me. It was yeah. me and my songs being played by a group of people that changed quite often. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it was like, like uh, a bit like Marquis Smith and Dave. Well, yeah, but yeah, in many ways, but, but like, not as irascible. No, thank you, Lee. I, not I, as I think I'm not quite as irascible as Marquis Smith. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. All right, cocker. <laughs> well, we've got some. Uh, we've got. I've got a couple of stories about the fall lined up. But interestingly, Simon and Garfunkel. They started off as Tom and Jerry, didn't they? they did indeed, Tom and Jerry. Very. In they the, were very young, weren't they? In the late fifties. Yeah. And the first falling out happened when Paul Simon got offered a solo deal, and he didn't tell Garfunkel about it. Mm. So Garfunkel said that it left their friendship shattered for life. And uh, when they got back together, they got back together in the mid-60s, it seemed like they were always so jealous of each other. You know, Paul Simon was jealous of the fact that Art Garfunkel could sing so well and Art Garfunkel was just jealous of what a great songwriter Paul Simon was. They didn't last long, did they? Because they split up after Bridge Over Troubled Water album. And uh, they did obviously reunite. They were making absolute shitloads of money, weren't yeah. they? But then something else happened, which is quite funny, is that Art Garfunkel did this private gig in, I think it was Nicaragua, of all places. Right. And he ended up choking on some lobster. Right. Which, which damaged his vocal cords. Right. Which meant that he couldn't perform and they had to postpone the rest of the tour. Wow. I don't think they've ever got back together after that. God, mad. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, have you got any um, stories before I start? Uh, you crack on. Third reasons why people have been kicked out of bands. I'll be honest with you, Lee, off the, top, off the top of my head at the moment, I am. But you, so you crack on. Something will come to me, though. Yeah. There's numerous things that are, you know, hilarious. Well, I'll start off with um, Richie Blackmore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it will appear more than oh, one. Richie Blackmore, man. I mean, there's so many Blackmore. He fired Graham Bonnet from Rainbow for getting a haircut. Really? If you know Graham bon- Bonnet, he sung on Since You've Been Gone and All Night Long. You know, I think he replaced Dio because obviously Dio was the original singer in Rainbow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he replaced him, but he got his haircut really short, which uh, pissed off Blackmore. No end. Oh, it's ridiculous. I, I will just throw this one in, which I think is quite interesting, is that Steely Dan did their first album, which is called Can't Buy a Thrill. Real classic album. Great, great. Mm. You know, it's got songs like Reeling in the Ears on it, you know. Great rock and roll tracks. Before they went kind of kind of jazzy as well, you know. But it is a great album. And then Walter Becker and Donald Fagan just decided to sack the rest of the band like this afterwards. And then it was just the two of them. And that was a real prime example of just two people who were just hiring people in. And that's really what it still done is. A band that just hires people in and they just try and get the creme de la creme for what they want for any particular song. Yeah. yeah. However, what they did was playing live. They just brought back members from the original band. You know, you'd think you'd be a bit pissed off, wouldn't you? You'd be it like, always amazes me. How people do rejoin bands or right, bands reform, you know, because there's usually some members who've been treated absolutely appallingly. 
Yeah, yeah. But they'll still reform. I mean, obviously, it's money more than anything. But you'd think that, I mean, I'm sure there's some that do put their dignity first. I find it really weird that that would be the uh, be mm. the case. And then the, and the, I love this sort of obscure things that happen in bands. Like, I love that story of, like, Finn Lizzy inviting Midjore to take over as lead guitarist, you know. Yes. I mean, that's fucking great. Yeah, and it's like, what? And even he was like, what me? Play guitar mm. in, <laughs> on top of you. Yeah. yeah. Did you know where Phil Collins once played with Black Sabbath? No, I didn't know that. You know when the Queen had this concert? Yeah. And amazingly, I don't know how this happened. Maybe the Osbournes was doing well at the time. Is that Black Sabbath played a couple of songs? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Was it the Queen or was it a Princess Diana thing? Cause oh, it might have been the Queen, you know, because they always have these, like, let's bring on some British bands who've been successful and kowtow to the monarchy for a bit. But he played in front of uh, Wills and Harry. And Phil Collins came and played. Yeah. Yeah, it was the Golden Celebration, the Jubilee, in 2002, and Phil Collins played bass for them. But there's some great footage. Phil Collins played bass. Not bass. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's even more amazing. Yeah. You can't even play bass for Black Sabbath. <laughs> no. I don't know why Geezer didn't play, but he didn't. But yeah, so I remember seeing some great footage of uh, Wills and Harry really rocking out, getting into it. And apparently Tony Iommi tells a story afterwards that they were dead eager to meet him. And yeah. they came up to him and they went, oh, oh yeah, it was great, great. Why, why didn't you play Black Sabbath? And he just went, oh, well, we only had a bit of time, you know. We thought we'd better pay Paranoid. But I thought, oh, that's amazing. You know, Wills and Harry being in a Sabbath. It just made me think of another amazing, strange crossover. I know it's a different from the falling out, but another one. Tony Iommi playing with Jethro Tull. Now, that, yeah. that is... And yet, he's there, this footage of him, when Jethro Tull played with the Rolling Stones on the Rolling Stones uh, Circus... That film where yeah. Rolling Stones do Sympathy for the Devil. Have you yeah, seen that? Yeah. yeah. And John Lennon's in the audience with Yoko singing along to Sympathy for the Devil. And Toll play, and it's Tony Iommi playing the guitar. That was before Sabbath actually formed, I think. Or yes, it was, yeah. Black Sabbath. And, but he came back, he didn't enjoy it because he thought, I'm just a yeah. hired hand here. You know, yeah, but, he, but what he says, stuff. what he says about that though, Lee, uh, in an, I heard him say this in an interview was, he said it gave him ambition and he taught him discipline. Yes. And he came from that, that experience with Tull, a kind of different, with a different mindset. And he knew, like, yeah. you've got to work really hard at this. You've got to really, really work your fucking balls off to get it right. Do what you need to do. Mm. You know what I mean? I hear stories like that. It's really inspiring. You know, I find that kind of thing really inspiring, you know, for me, what I'm doing now, because it just makes me think, yeah, I'm going to just keep working on this and hone what I'm doing to get it to such a level and it's getting there you know i'm getting so, a lot of work because i've put the work into it because yeah. any tom dick and harry can sing but it's how you present it and how you engage and how you perform it and and the jokes and the little and the little asides and it's honing that thing that you're doing it's all about delivery on performance you know Absolutely. brilliant it's a brilliant yeah. thing I, 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 I love tony iomi i think he's such a yeah. great great guy He's so principled about what he does. And I love Black Sabbath. Yeah, I, mean, I love the way they just focused on what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. I've just finished uh, listening to Geezer's new book, which is really good. 
I wouldn't mind reading that myself. Actually, yeah. I, mean, I need to buy something on Sabbath. I love, I love the story behind them. God, what's it like? Lee? Sorry, what's what? How, would you read? Yeah, it's a really it? good book. You know, I mean, he's such a great bloke, geezer, and he tells some quite interesting stories. I wish it had been a bit longer. It is a bit sort of your typical rock star biography, just you know, full of lots of anecdotes. Right, here's one for you, Dave. Pete Best was too good looking for the Beatles. Oh. That's why they kicked him out. Yes, that's an absolute classic. Were they that good looking, the Beatles? No, they weren't, of course not. I mean, they grow, they grew into their... I think when they got to a certain age, they started looking pretty good. I think Macca sported a beard brilliantly in the late 60s. He looked yeah, really he did. Good. He had a really good look. If anything, he... Macca matured in his face and his look as he did with his music, by the time the Beatles got to like 68, 69, Macca was running the show, wasn't he? Mm. Macca was doing it. Don't care what anybody says. It was Macca. He had the ambition. He had all the tunes. Those last albums, I mean, look at Abbey Road as an album. Look at the songs on Abbey Road, man. Yeah. yeah. That's all Macca. All of that. Golden slumbers and bloody, you never give me your money. What a tune that is. Then didn't they eventually split up? I mean, obviously they've been together ages. Didn't they eventually split up? It was after Epstein died, wasn't it? And they got yeah. this new manager in called Alan Klein, I think he was called, who didn't, McCartney didn't trust him at all. But it, absolutely. And and this is the other thing. This is a brilliant point you're making. This is, again, about acrimonious splits from bands. Definitely the case with the Beatles. I mean, first of all, if any of our listeners... I've seen the, the documentary Get Back, which is on Disney Plus, I think, that was done by uh, uh, Peter Jackson. It, it's brilliant because he puts together all this this footage that, that was taken when they were writing Let It Be, the album Let It Be, mm. which was a bit of a hodgepodge album, really, because Phil Spector did a lot of it. But George Martin then got involved to help produce it, I think, in the end. So George Martin's done it a lot. But you see also, it's brilliant. It's so candid behind the scenes what's going on. Because you can see that, like, Macca is kind of running the show. John's sort of in and out because he's faffing about so much with Yoko. And George is really unhappy. And George leaves a band. So the first thing was, was George leaves a band. Right. And then, right. The, and then you hear this conversation with John and Paul discussing about getting Eric Clapton in to the band. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then they were saying, no, it would be better to get George back. And they get George back and everything else. If you haven't seen it, you get a chance... The documentary Get Back is unbelievably good. It's brilliant because it's because it's like five hours. It's really long. And you get to see all this footage of them. This is a band that have hit the sort of the apex of their career and it's starting to dismantle. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see. And it's really fascinating to see how how much the driving force is is Paul. Paul still wants it. Mm. He still, you can see he's looking, he's making, you know, he's coming forward with all these ideas and stuff. And the public got the impression that Paul wanted to end the Beatles, and I don't think that was the truth at all. In fact, dare I say it, that actually it was Lennon that scuppered the Beatles and he blamed it on McCartney, and so much so that when McCartney released his first album, it got absolutely smashed by the press. They fucking trashed it. Because everyone blamed McCartney for breaking up the Beatles, and that wasn't the case. And that's common knowledge now. It's come out that that's the case. Yeah. You know? Well, why do you think John Lennon wanted to break them up? 
I don't know. I think there was a side of Lennon that was a complete fucking prick. Oh, yeah. The thing with Lennon is, right, and I'm happy to say it because there's loads of Lennonites out there. There's probably a lot of people who listen to this and they'll be like fuming with me saying this. But I think that Lennon was a kind of very mercurial character and everything I hear about him is he could be a real pain in the arse. He could be brilliant and great and a great mate, be a pain in the arse. He had a troubled upbringing, didn't he? He had a really, you know, he was an only kid that was pretty much brought up by his aunt, wasn't it? Not by his mum. He didn't have a lot of family around him. And I think he was a difficult character at times. And I think Maka was kind of like from a big family and a lot of love and support, even though he lost his mum young. And uh, I think he was always trying to push forward with the Beatles. And in the end, uh, and I think he worshipped John. I think he did. I got the impression he worshipped him. But you know what's, what's very tellingly? I've spoken to a couple of people recently, very old people who knew, fantastic this, who knew John Lennon and Paul McCartney when they were kids. So it shows you how old these people are, right? And I've heard some brilliant stories. And one of the stories, one of the absolute mainstays of the stories is that John Lennon was a prick. (laughs) All the other lads were great, really lovely. And Paul was lovely and everything. But John could be a really nasty piece of work. Yeah. And he had a reputation back then. Now, I'm not saying he didn't grow out of it and didn't become this. And obviously, super talented, written some, he's written great songs and everything else. But I think it's now coming forward, quite rightly, that Maka is the real genius musician out of the Beatles, really. Because he's a great... The thing with Maka is he can write some really twee fucking lyrics, right? And twee stuff. But he's such a melody maker, such a tunesmith. And if you weigh up the amount of hits between the two, Macca supersedes Lennon loads. Mm, so, especially yeah. as things went on, all the big hits towards the end were all Macca. You know, Get Back, um, Let It Be, you know, all these songs that are in people's psyche, Hey Jude, all this kind of stuff. So it's really difficult. And I think that was part of the problem, that he wanted to pro- progress, keep going, keep driving forward. And... You know, I don't think Lennon did. No, I mean, he might have been eyeing a solo career at that point. I mean, Yoko was obviously blamed, wasn't she? But Paul McCartney's exonerated her and said that, you know, she certainly wasn't the reason the Beatles broke up. Um, But anyway, Dave, are you ready for another one? Go for it, pal. This is one of my absolute favourites. Probably won't have heard of this musician. Dave Glover. Oh, yeah, and yeah. So Dave Glover was fired from Slade for getting engaged to Rose West. Oh, I have heard. I know of Dave Glover because of your brother. I know. Through your brother, Gav, I know about Dave Glover. In fact, I think I read about this. Yeah, Gav told me. I read about this and then in something like the News of the Screws and then consulted Gav about it. It went, oh, yeah, Dave, yeah, I know all about this. You know, typical Gav, like, yeah, I know all about this. Fucking freak. I couldn't put a face to Dave Glover, but I did see Slade too, uh, and Gav was supporting them. Yeah. Explain that, that, Lee, to our listeners. Yeah, so Gav, my brother's in a band. They were John Russell's blues 
band, I think they yeah. were called, because John Russell, who used to actually be in Gary Glitter's band. I'm the leader. Well, yeah, he was in uh, he was in the Glitter band who had their own hits, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my brother hooked up with him for a bit. And uh, one of the gigs they did, they, well, I think it was a tour, actually. They supported Slade 2. This was yeah. Slade without Noddy Holder, <laughs> yeah, which is a bit odd. But anyway, oh, my God. I mean, that is just such a brilliant story, isn't it? Getting engaged to Rose West. That is incredible. That's Apparently he denied it, but he obviously, there was obviously <laughs> something going on that he was in a relationship. This was obviously while she was in, in the Nick. It's such a reverse of the norm as well, because it's usually these like odd situations where these women fantasize about serial killers, you know, like, yeah. is it Robert R- Ramirez who's got like like 70 women writing to him all the time, you know, they yeah. fucking vile, dirty scumbag, you know, but yeah, I mean, come on. Oh, she's fucking. a fucking horrible looking woman anyway. I was just going to say, I mean, who, who the fuck will, Jesus Christ, Rose West. <laughs> Rose West makes Olive from On the Buses look like Marilyn Monroe. You know, <laughs> you know? Oh. Rose West makes Susan Boyle <laughs> <laughs> you know, look like Dua Lipa. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? What kind of fuck? What kind of fucking booze goggles was he wearing? God knows. I'm gonna have to look up a picture of him now. I'm sure he's no fucking oil painting, but even so, come on. Dave Glover, Slade. Dave Glover, son of Brian. <laughs> Midland pop legend Slade have sacked one of their guitarists because he was planning to marry mass murderer Rose West. Dave Glover. <laughs> 36. 36. It's only 36. 59. Oh, for fuck's sake. She was only 48. Oh, my God. Oh, right. So apparently Rose called off the wedding because she's, she wants to give this young man his life back. Oh, my well, that's God. That's the first. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, what a twat. Yeah. You know, he's in a bloody... He's got a nice little little thing going for himself they're playing in the bloody touring around with the slave band and then he gets having cup of soups having cup of soups <laughs> lovely cup of soups great he's got a quote great. here from dave hill dave come on dave i was stunned when i heard what dave glover was planning to do i had absolutely no idea they had any contact with rose west or even had a girlfriend <laughs> i'm completely horrified by it <laughs> Very upsetting to me personally, and I'm glad to see the back of him. Oh, he's a nice bloke and all that, but this is just totally sick. He has to go for the good name of the band. Oh my Jesus. god! I still can't find a picture of him. I remember it. I can. Rem- I remember the article in the news of the news of the world. It was ridiculous. It was just like, what the fuck is going on here? Well, there he is, actually. I bet he struggles to live that one down down his. Local pub. <laughs> right, Dave, you fucking moron. What were you thinking? This is a Van Halen one, Dave. Now, yeah. this is about bass player Michael Anthony. Now, Michael Anthony was fired for not hating singer Sammy Hagar enough. <laughs> now, 
for those who may not know, Sammy Hagar was the singer of Van Halen. He joined after Dave Lee Roth left and was uh, with him for a good decade. But there was tensions between Sammy and the Van Halen brothers. And when he left again, Michael Anthony was the bass player throughout both periods. And yeah. he just played some gigs with Sammy because he said I had nothing to do. You know, the yeah. band was on hiatus. So I thought I'd do a few gigs. But this really pissed off the Van Halen brothers who subsequently sacked him because they, they saw it as him taking Sammy Hagar's side. Ah. And he eventually replaced him with Eddie oh. Van Halen's son, Wolfgang. Oh, my God. Bring the lad in. Keep it in the family. There's so many, though, isn't there, like this? I mean, you know, I think it's quite interesting. I think the Rolling Stones, like, had their filler, Brian Jones, for example. This was like, they sort of ostracised him, didn't they, before he ended up at the bottom of a swimming pool. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. Well, I've heard that he got kicked out for being too interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, it's might have been it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, bands <laughs> are fucking ridiculous, aren't they? Do you know what just sprung to mind now when you're mentioning that is the way the, the, the trials and tribulations of Lemmy in Hawkwind, because didn't Hawkwind abandon Lemmy at some hotel or something? They just well, no, it was, it was in jail, wasn't it? This is another one where, because Lemmy was kicked out of Hawkwind for being on the wrong drugs. <laughs> wasn't there something when they just left him at the hotel? Yeah, because Lemmy, Lemmy was a speed freak and they were all acid heads. So they weren't really on the same wavelength. So, so, so they saw him as pretty, like, unpredictable. Right. And I think he got arrested for possession of methamphetamine. All right. <laughs> rather than going to get him out they yeah. just left him in jail That's, and carried jail. on the tour Jesus I've replaced him that's right they left him in jail fucking hell yeah. that's mad isn't it that's, I mean it's not mad it's fucking cruel yeah it's fucking cruel and then of course Sid Barrett uh, again Sid Barrett with Pink Floyd that whole business there I mean Pink Floyd I mean God it's cutthroat isn't it yeah you know Jesus Christ. I mean, Sid, I mean, obviously Sid was off his rock. I think they all cared for Sid a lot, but he couldn't have carried on with Sid. No. But um, they, oh, they I just need he... to remove this picture of Rose West, Dave. <laughs> so horrible, isn't she? Yeah, fucking hell. I mean, I, I mean, she's 48. I mean, she was 48 when he got engaged to her. I mean, you've seen her there. She looks about 59. I'm like 48. <laughs> right. So have you ever heard of the... The story about Van Halen and the M&Ms. I don't think so. Go on. This is quite a famous story that Van Halen had in their contract whenever they played a gig in relation to the, you know, the backstage rider. They specified that there should be no brown M&Ms. So they expected unbelievable. The yeah, they, they expected the promoter to remove all the brown M&Ms before they arrived at the gig. It was actually written in the contract, Dave. I've seen the contract, right? And it says, if any brown M&Ms are to be seen or found, then the concert promoter would forfeit his fee. Right. Now, on the face of it, this seems like Mariah Carey type. Yeah. Either behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, But it was actually a clever test to see if the promoter had actually read the contract. Ah, I so, see. Because yeah. at the time, they had this really big stage production. 
Right. So if they arrived at a gig and they saw that there was brown M&Ms there, they'd yeah. know that they'd have to double check the stage setup. Right. So it's quite a uh, clever thing. That, that is thought. quite clever, actually. Yeah, but yeah. It was, it's always been misrepresented, you know, as saying it was about their rock star egos and that. Or just being complete dicks. Yeah, but they were actually, yeah, they were actually yeah. seeing if they'd written, read the contract from start to finish properly. So it's it's, it's kind of urban myth that one really. Isn't mm, it? Yeah. One that springs to mind for me, Lee, going back to uh, Pink Floyd, which I think is hilarious, is did they not fire? They fired Rick Wright, didn't they, or Richard Wright, the keyboard player, who was a founder member of Pink Floyd right from the start, and I think he fell out with. Roger Waters, didn't he? Yeah, it was during the wall. They recorded in the wall. That's right. They fired him, but then they rehired him as a musician. Yeah, and he made more money than them. And he absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Well, he never came back. I mean, he, he got... Money as a session player. Yeah, because when Pink Floyd reformed without... Well, they didn't really reform, did they? But Roger expected them. He said, Pink Floyd have split up because I've left. And they were like, well, no, no, we're yeah. carrying on. Yeah. And yes, we got Richard right back and they went on this massive tour. But because the stage show and everything else cost so much money, I don't think Gilmore and Nick Mason made that much out of it. Or yeah. they, may, they may even have made like losses on it. But Rick Wright, because he was a hired musician, got his wage yes. every week. That's a pain. <laughs> but I always found it odd that... Waters had that, you know, could do that. I mean, like you say, he was a founding member. He contributed lots of the songs and the sound of Pink Floyd. And you think that you wouldn't just be allowed to sack someone because obviously bands become businesses, don't they? Where they all have like a a quarter share or whatever, or they should do. It's the power of personality, Lee, I think. Mm -hmm. It goes back to the Richard Blackmore thing as well. You know, Richard Blackmore had this kind of power of personality. I mean, obviously, Richard Blackmore was a, he's a brilliant guitar player and he has this kind of aura about him as a guitar player. So he, he could, you know, do all sorts of things on a whim, sort of get away with it. And then he was enabled to get away with it because other people were too passive. You know, yeah, people, yeah, like, yeah. people like Lord, John Lord. Pace. Pace and Lord. Pace. I mean, Pace and Lord, <laughs> let's be honest. This is it. I mean, the great musicians that they are, that they are and were. You know, or, or in the case of John Lord, of course, were which sadly he's passed away. But we always used to make jokes about John Lord, didn't we? You know, cowardly lion, <laughs> cowardly lion. Well, Richie, Richie wanted to, you know, um, uh, he did want to get rid of get rid of Gillen, and what could I do? Really, what could I do about it? You know, it's always it's so kind of it's so. It's so inept and pathetic, really, isn't it? <laughs> All he wants to do is play his keyboard and go home. You know, bless him. Yeah, you know. and Pacey's always, like, using the excuse of him being dead young. Yeah, I was just a young kid, you know, just, like, playing yeah, drums, did. getting drunk and, you know. You always think of Ian Pace as, like, you know, pushing his glasses, you know, pushing the middle of his rim of his glasses, you know. <laughs> like, well, the thing is, you know, I'm just playing the drums, you know, really good. And Ian Pace is such a great drummer and they were such a great band. But, yeah. but you knew full well that the personality, the huge personalities there were Blackmore and Gillen. They mm. were like really big personalities, sort of. Uh, and even Glover, you know, he's Glover again, he's a kind of fairly, he seems quite an easygoing guy to me. Yeah. 
Well, it you was know? weird that because yeah, because Deep Purple Mark II, as they were known, they it was the Gillen era, the most successful period, and then Richie just decided that he wanted something different, and he that's post war. You know, and I think Gillen actually resigned, didn't he? Did Gillen resign because yeah. he was just yeah. so sick of Richie's controlling behaviour and yeah, shit? Yeah, yeah. But Richie then said, "Well, I want to get rid of Roger as well," you know, and there was no yeah. particular reason for that. Apparently, he just said it's business. So, but then he rehired him when he formed I guess Rainbow. He's right then. Yeah. yeah, because he did. He did actually respect Glover, and not just as a musician, but also as a producer. Yeah, well, I think Glover did produce some of those Rainbow albums. Yeah, yeah. That was a really heartless decision, I thought, because yeah, yeah. he'd not really fallen out with him or anything. Yeah. But do you know, the, uh, the there's a funny story about how they got, how Gillen ended up leaving the second time, because Deep Purple, the Gillen-led Purple, uh, reformed in 1984. And, uh, you know, they had a couple of successful albums, uh, they were selling tours well, but Gillen ended up leaving over a plate of spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> <Right>. So what happened was after a gig, they're having the tea. Brilliant. Right, and Richie apparently bursts in holding a <laughs> plate of spaghetti bolognese, which somebody had chucked a load of ketchup on. <laughs> and Ian Gillen said, I was just sat there and I could see Richie came in fuming and I could see he was blaming me straight away, even though I didn't do it. And he still denies to his day that it was him. And he said, <laughs> Richie just came up to him, started effing and jeffing and accusing him and then just thrust the plate like a custard pie into Gillen's face. Unbelievable. And broke the plate. Jesus, broke and the did, plate. Yeah, on his face. Jesus Christ. And Richie wanted to have a fight. But uh, Gillen was like, he kept calm and he, and he said, I just went to the bathroom to try and calm down. And I decided that, you know, that's it. I can't carry on with this. But I don't think he'd left at that point. But he said it just told him that there was no future. Yeah, yeah. I think Richie Blackmore more is quite mad as a person. <laughs> is, yeah. Yeah. Well, have you seen what he's doing now? I know. I mean, this is it. I mean, he dresses like a fucking like Gandalf. For, for a start, doesn't he? You know, he does, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he, him and his missus, they dress like sort of warlocks and witches, and he plays the mandolin. And it's just, it's, I mean, fair play, go and, go ahead and do it. Mm. It's a lot better than being like a fucking dirty old nonce like Bill Wyman. So, you know, he's like, <laughs> referring back to the Rolling Stones. Do you know, Bill, can I just, bands, you know, people in bands, I mean, fucking hell, musicians are so fucking sleazy, aren't they? Bill Wyman's son married. What's that? What's that tart? Mate? It was thirteen. Mate. I shouldn't say that. Really. Man, oh, what's uh, her name? Mandy. Mandy something. What was her name? Mandy Smith. Mandy Smith. Thank you. Yeah. Jesus Christ. So Bill Bill Wyman was dating Mandy Smith, was he not? From the age of thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he married her when she was 18, right? Mm. He was like an old cunt then. I mean, he's about 88 now. He's ancient. He's by far the oldest member of the Rolling Stones. Look it up. His son, right? Bill Wyman's son went on to marry Mandy Smith's mother. 
is a fact. That oh, my is a God. Fact. So Bill Wyman's son, right, could have been his father-in-law if they'd have stayed married. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is truly, honestly, I promise you, go look so, it up. Say that again. What? What would the relationship between... So Bill Wyman's son would have been Bill Wyman's father-in-law. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. That is the weirdest, mm. So grubby. Oh, that is an amazing story. Right, here's one. Now, this probably is my favourite, Dave. Go on, pal. Jeff Young got fired from Megadeth... Right. For blow drying his hair. <laughs> that is fucking AIDS. That is so, so the funny. story goes that uh, the band were out on tour yeah. and uh, Jeff Young had not been with Megadeth for that long. And uh, the singer and leader of Megadeth, Dave Mustaine, who is quite a character, yeah. just casually went into. Young's dressing room, and there he was, hairdryer in hand, teasing out his hair, which absolutely infuriated Dave and horrified him, because this wasn't how he expected band members to behave. It just wasn't very metal. <laughs> and at the time, there was this was like the 89, I think it was, it was like this rivalry going on between thrash bands and hair metal bands. So it was like he'd walked in on him fucking a goat. <laughs> we also fired the drummer for being too fat. <laughs> but, you know, Mustaine, um, he famously got himself kicked out of Metallica. Did you know he was in Metallica in the early days? Yeah, I've, I've yeah. heard that. So this is quite a funny story as well, is that this was back in 83, I think, just before they were about to record the debut album. Apparently, Mustaine could be like a horrible drunk. Yeah. You know, he said everyone used to get pissed and that, but whereas James Etfield and Lars and Cliff, they were sort of quite happy, mischievous drunks. Mm. Mustaine used to get really violent and just absolutely horrible. So one day, the band had made a decision and they woke him up dead early when he had a terrible hangover and they just handed him a bus ticket and told him that he was out of the band. <laughs> now, at the time, they were in New York and Mustaine lived in California. So he had to get the bus. I don't know how long that would have taken from one side of America to the other. But it took him absolutely ages. Um, but what he did, what he says is that he used that time to plot his revenge. And he actually started writing some lyrics on the back of this leaflet that he found. And the leaflet was from a senator about stockpiling nuclear weapons right. and within the text it said the arsenal of megadeth can't be rid and that's where he got the name megadeth from ah brilliant now mustaine now he, he accepts that he was a prick but he says that what really upset him was he was never given any warnings about his behavior he just felt it was like a really harsh decision and yeah. if you've seen him on that uh, some kind of monster documentary do you remember that bit where yes, he's talking about that's why, that, that's how I know him saying it, he never got over it? Yeah, yeah. Right. That's how I really know him from that, to be honest. Yeah. 
It's unbelievable. I mean, there's been so there's so many band stories like that though, where people are just like so cruel to us. <laughs> yeah. Band members and things. It's so weird. But it is a strange environment being in a band. I mean, I've had to do personally do things that you know. Well, you have you had to sack members? Oh God, yeah, it's been awful. Oh, have I not spoken about this before? It's terrible. No, I don't think so. I had this fellow in my band right at the beginning of the Interceptors when things were looking promising, looking up. You know, we got this, we got this opportunity to do a almost like a pre-gig for Suits at the Cafe Royal, right? In order to get as a gig at the Cafe de Paris, which is like a big, you know, it's a massive nightclub in London full of celebs and stuff. This was literally like the first gig of the Interceptors. Right. And I wasn't even living in England. I, was living, I wasn't in Manchester. I was living in the Isle of Man at the time. And it was very exciting. But we needed to get this band together. Now, Matt Steele helped me a, a, a lot. Matt's a great musician and very well known to this day. With plays with Tony Christie and Brand New Heaven. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, that's terrible of me, isn't it? Because Tony Christie passed away, didn't he? But um, he played with... Um, Tony Christie, but he played. He plays mainly with the brand new heavies. He plays a lot with the brand new heavies and stuff. Oh right, yeah. So the thing is, I was literally trying to organise this band living in the Isle of Man. Got a bit of help from Matt, and he got a couple of people. And then Anthony, who's my bass player, he suggested this guy called Gol. I swear you, this is his name, Gollum, right? <laughs> Which I've never heard before. I never heard anybody called Gollum before. I knew nothing about the Lord of the Rings at the time, right? And he lived in Lincolnshire. He didn't live in Manchester. He lived in Lincoln. It was bad enough me coming to fucking back to Manchester to do like a couple of rehearsals from the Isle of Man. Yeah. But after saying that, it was my fucking baby. You know, it was my thing. Gollum was coming. And and I should have seen the warning signs from Matt alone. that He wasn't local. He could only play one thing, which was like like the funky drummer riff. And I thought, Anthony's this really great bass player. I mean, plays. I mean, he played double bass for me, mainly Anthony. So, mm. you know, double. A great musician. Anthony Haller is a great musician. And I thought, why have you recommended this guy? And everyone else was, we were all looking at each other going, this guy's fucking terrible. The thing with it, he could keep a beat when he was holding the beat. He couldn't do fills. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, God. The key to any band is you need a good drummer. You've got to have a good drummer. And my band really needed it. You know, we really needed to have mm. that. So we basically knew that for the Cafe Royal thing, we need to go to London to get that. The thing is, Lee, as well, it was like Bill Kenwright. You know, Bill Kenwright who passed yeah, away yeah. recently. It yeah. was like his brother who was viewing us. Bill Kenwright's a massive name in show business, isn't he? Like a big name, yeah, yeah. right? And this is Bill Kenwright's brother. He was like the booking agent for the Cafe de Paris. Uh, so we... We honed it down like four songs. And so everything was like the funky drummer beat. <laughs> and we got the gig at the Café de Paris. And then going back on the the bus, it was literally like, we've got the gig now. And Matt's going, and this is this is the music business, baby. Matt and whoever else was going, I can get Pat Illingworth to play next time. It was a brilliant drummer. Mm. Or I can get Matt Swindles to play. It was a brilliant drummer. And both Pat and Matt Swindles played for me, and great. I didn't know Gav at the time, but mm. Matt and Pat Ellingworth, and then he said Ray, and Ray Ellingworth, then he's a cricketer. Uh, Pat Ellingworth, brilliant drums. 
so when we got back, I knew because I needed the other guys in the band with me that I had to let Gollum go. And Gollum was such a lovely guy, and he was loving it. And his first else, name or last name, Dave? Can't remember. I think it was his first name. I think Gollum was his first name. name. Maybe. Jazz musician. But he was like, oh, Dave, oh, thanks, Dave. Was so, mm. But I'm thinking, you're riding on my fucking surf. You're riding on my surfboard here, mate. <laughs> you know, this is my dream, not yours. So I had to, I had to make the horrible phone call to him. And the bottom line is as well, this guy had fucking made two or three visits from Lincolnshire to rehearse with us, you know. Fucking hell. But anyway, anyway, I had to ring him up and say, hi, Gollum. Thanks for being there as a drummer to get me through to the next stage of my career. <laughs> but, but unfortunately, you've got to go, son. You've it's just got to go. You're just not good enough. And that was, At least you, you know, told him straight. That was the worst thing I did, really. I could have quoted the thing, I think I'm sure I've told you before, in my first band, Chris, who I went to school with, um, and he's a brilliant guitar player, and everyone said, he's got to go, he plays over everything. Dave, <laughs> he plays ever, all over the songs, he never shuts up with his guitar playing. It's like he was, it was like he was hitting solos during the verses. I mean, what the <laughs> fuck are you doing, you knobhead? And I had to sort of say to him, it's the other guys or you. You know, but do you know what? He's a successful guy. He he actually is a he writes music for fucking computer games now, so he's a really successful guy. Oh. But he was, you know, he slammed the phone down on me. You know, Gollum was so nice though. He didn't do that. He yeah. went, okay, Dave, I understand. Blah blah yeah. blah. Oh well. I felt mortifiedly. It's mortifying. Yeah, at least you didn't get your the manager to do it, Dave, which a lot of bands do. No, I never did that. To be fair, mm. I absolutely. When it came to personnel in the band, I never, ever did that. No, yeah. I, I'm quite proud of myself for that. I manned up and did it myself. But, you know, like Chris banged the phone down on me and was very frustrated. But that said it all about Gollum, you know, he was a lovely fella. But I knew something was wrong. Coming that distant to be in this band, he knew he was on some, onto something. But he just he didn't cut the mustard. Yeah. And that's the shit truth about bands. You've got to cut the mustard. You know, often it's, well, it's usually musical differences, isn't it? I mean, there has been a few cases I know of where musicians haven't been up to it on therefore they have to go, which is, is, a, is a fair enough reason. Absolutely. The great example that, you know, of the thing is, yes, Paul Simon wrote all the songs and Paul Simon's this you know, very talented musician and, the whole music genius thing gets banded around too much, but Paul Simon is a very talented singer-songwriter. Let's put it that way. But for the image, for the promotion, it was good that he had somebody else with him. Yeah. And he was the taller, more slightly more handsome guy who had a beautiful voice. Art Garfunkel, he was important. And that's what... Perhaps, hopefully, looking back on it, Paul Simon realises now he mm. was important in his success. Without Art Garfunkel, Paul Simon wouldn't have become Paul Simon. Very unlikely. Very unlikely he would have yeah. been. You know? There's very also few- a story, Dave, about Paul Simon getting really pissed off because apparently they were both in Catch-22. Yes. 
the film. Yeah, and, they, uh, yeah. But Paul Simon's part got cut, which made him insanely before. jealous of Art Garfunkel. And yeah. of course, Art Garfunkel did have a few movie roles, he didn't did. he? Cardinal Knowledge with Jack Nicholson. Yeah. No, he was in Carnal Knowledge, rather. Sorry, with Jack Nicholson. He was. Um, he was. Uh, he was more of a pinup boy, and he was a reasonable actor. To be fair. That inspired Paul to write, was it The Only Living Boy in New York or something? Yes. Going back to what we're saying about bands getting the managers to fire members. Now, yeah. I think this happened when the Pixies fired Kim Shatuk. Yeah. Well, can I just say, yeah, I know about this one as well. But I tell you something, that is, again, when bands get to a certain level, it's the absolute forefront of cowardice. Yeah, I can't believe they do that. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It is totally embarrassing. You're dead right. She got fired from the Pixies uh, for doing a stage dive. Exactly. Yeah. It's, just, it's it's preposterous, isn't it? Apparently, there was an uncomfortable conversation where somebody told her that uh, the Pixies don't actually do that. But I think members of the Pixies have since said that, you know, she didn't really fit in the band personality wise because they were like from the East Coast and she was very West Coast. So they weren't really on the same wavelength. And that's why she had to go. But the the stage dive was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's amazing isn't it? how bands are either filled with kind of like huge kind of in your face egotists like. Well, I was going to say Richie Blackmore, but it's not. It's kind of introverted in, in a weird way as well. Mm. But there's a strange psychopathy, I think, with a lot of people in bands. And a lot of it is down to kind of like being introverted and not wanting to speak the mind. And the ones that speak the mind and say how it is, like the Roger Waters of this world, get called fascists. So they get, a, they get branded, don't they? Yeah, yeah. As being, oh, well, he's a bit of a fascist, you know, but... Yeah, and I was thinking, well, yeah, it may be the case, but... Not a fascist, that's ridiculous. I know we got... You've got millions of pounds in your fucking bank account because of him. Without him, you wouldn't have it, would you? They wouldn't, would they? These people that are quite keen to call, to talk about Roger Waters in that way, you know, Dave Gilmore is a lovely, super guitarist, but there's no fucking way Dave Gilmore would have made half the impact he has without Roger Waters. Not a fucking chance. Because he's too mild-mannered. He's like a fucking little reverend in a little, you know, in a village, isn't he? He's like a, you know, a father yeah, brown. Yeah. Terribly polite. It's the driving forces of these bands. You know, before I was slagging off Lennon, but in a way, maybe Lennon was initially the driving force of the Beatles. He was yeah. initially the driving force of the Beatles. I'm sure of it. And then McCartney took over. But you need that. You need that kind of... And then everyone goes after, oh, poor George Harrison, he had these lovely songs, he was great, blah, blah, blah. George was great. But George would have been nothing, nothing at all ever without John and Paul. Mm. Simple as that. You need those driving forces. Absolutely, you do. You always need those driving forces. And they always get fucking besmirched by people. This is what happens. That's true. It is so true, isn't it? Yeah. This is why I love Keith. I love Keith and Mick because Keith and Mick were obviously driving forces, the pair of them, squabbling like squabbling fucking siblings at each other's throats half the time, blah, blah, blah. 
You but, always tend to get a, either a partnership, don't you? Two strong characters or you get a dictator. Yeah, yeah. Band, and you find that the dictator goes through several lineup changes. Indeed. You know, they're constantly replacing the musician, like Megadeth, for instance. I think as well, partnerships are very... I mean, I always thought, I'll be honest, I kind of thought I need to sort of hide behind a band, even though I'm really doing a kind of solo thing. So I'm very, I mean, I'm in great admiration of solo artists, to be honest. When you look at, like, people who've made it as solo artists, it's quite brilliant, isn't it, really, when you think about it? You know, like rock and roll solo artists. So let's say, like, old school, like, rock and roll, like, people like, say people like uh, Neil Diamond, someone like that, or a Neil Sedaka, or a Prince, or people who have established themselves as a particular individual. It's very impressive, to be fair. They've done it through... They've probably done it through the, the strength of songwriting initially, to be honest. I think all three of them, names that are quoted there, they were all as quite well established as songwriters first and foremost before, you know, because they were all, let, let's be honest, like maybe Prince is a good looking guy, but he was only a little fella, wasn't he? A wee fella. So, he's only a wee fella. Sadaka and fucking Diamonds, they're not exactly oil paintings. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, how the hell did they become little. stars? Probably the strength of their songwriting. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, what, they write? What, what fucking songs did they write? They wrote really catchy songs. It's simple as that. And it's a business, isn't it? You yeah, know, yeah. Tim Panel is looking for catchy songs. Going back to the Rolling Stones, they are remarkable because Jagger and Richard and the Rolling Stones in general, they had a number one hit before they'd even written a song. They didn't get together like, they didn't get together with the idea of writing songs. Because they got together right, do it playing blues. That was oh, it. Oh, yeah. Isn't that incredible? Lennon McCartney, they came together, and the Beatles, as a formation, came together after they were the Quarrymen. And when Pete Best and other people you know, were in the band, and they were honing their skills, and they were doing lots of covers, they weren't really writing original songs, but then they suddenly went, let's start writing songs. So immediately they had written a lot of songs when they became famous. But Jagger and Richards hadn't even written a single fucking song together. Right. I think that's fucking incredible. When you think now how they suddenly said, well, let's start writing songs of our own. And then they had this range of incredible hits. And the longevity of them as a band is, it's... The flip side of this falling out is... Bands that have almost like ripped each other apart one way or another and still stay together, you know. Yeah, they've had massive fallouts before. Huge fallouts. Keith Richard and Mick Jagger, they hate each other half the time, even to this day. I think going back to Hall and Oates, they've described themselves, you know, I think they've both said this, is that they're more like brothers than yeah. friends, you know. We're not friends, but we're brothers, you know. We sort of love each other, but we don't necessarily like each other. I completely understand that, and that is that's what happens. It's like I have very little to do with my family anymore. I love them and I wish them well. I want them to do well, yeah. but I don't want to really spend. You know, it's hard. You know what it's like as well. The you know having, and you're a better sibling than I. I am. That's by a million miles. I know that about you. It's quite common, isn't it? I think, like people say, you can't choose 
your family, you can choose your friends, and that's what a lot of people do. Are you there, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. I've just, oh, I was swigging down my last bit of the <laughs> wonderful so, Panther Porter. Lovely stuff. Right, so um, I wanted to mention, I forgot to mention it, is that there was a, there's a link between Van Halen and Daryl Hall. Oh, which yeah. I only found out today is that after Dave Lee Roth left Van Halen, they asked Daryl Hall to join them. It doesn't surprise me. Which, I mean, he turned them down, obviously, but yeah. it's amazing. It is amazing. But I mean, do you know why that is? Because I, I, I forgot to tell you this before, but Robert Fripp was saying that when he worked on, when he worked with Daryl Hall, he said he was by far the best recording artist he'd ever worked with. He said, you ask Daryl Hall to sing something this way, and he would do it immediately. And then said, can you create this, this and this vocally? He would do yeah. it immediately. He's really professional. He's I a really sort professional. Of see it because Van Halen were going a bit poppy at that yeah. point, which was one of the reasons Dave Lee Roth was thinking, you know, of leaving because he wasn't particularly happy with Eddie putting keyboards over everything. Yeah, yeah. For one, he's a he's a very good musician. He's a, he's a good guitar and keyboard player, but vocally, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of talent and range, and he can deliver. So if it's one of those things, isn't it? Thinking, well, someone who's really professional at what they do mm. and they know what they're doing. It's it, in a way, it don't surprise me to be honest. I can see what you mean because it seems like a different genre, really. But they were. But it's like that. They were quite a poppy. Yeah, they did. Rock heavy poppy, rock yeah. band. And they had a kind of glam 80s pop about them as well. You know, when I'm, I'm obviously thinking of things like Jump, which is very much a commercial track. But mm. it's not that far in the imagination to see someone like Daryl Hall being able to do that. Yeah. Well, it's like that story of, um, which has been denied and might be an urban myth, that Michael Bolton auditioned for Black Sabbath. <laughs> He sent a tape. This is when he was unknown. Hilarious. That he did send, I think it was after Gillen left. Gillen was with him for an album. And uh, yeah, apparently Michael Bolton sent a tape in. But Tony says, oh, I don't remember really. I've heard Geezer talk about this, but, you know, I can't really remember it. <laughs> Nothing surprises me, in, honestly, in rock and roll. It's like that thing when Trevor Horn, you remember Buggles? Yeah. You know, and Trevor Horn, who's obviously known today as this huge producer but he had this like big hit buggles had this big hit with trevor horn singing video killed the radio star and then was got he got asked to be the front man of yes yeah that's right yeah i mean can you imagine i mean what's that all about he got oh, asked, yeah. i mean i remember he, I remember he'd been interviewed saying he was terrified to go into madison, madison square gardens or something to perform as a member of Yes. It's crazy. There is actually a story of Yes, I think, that they kicked John Anderson out. I mean, they've, they've reformed loads of times, haven't they, yeah. with different lineups? But I think John Anderson was dead ill in hospital and they kept saying to him, when are you going to get better? Yeah, because he lost up. patience with him. And he was like, he was really seriously ill. He thought, well, we need an answer. <laughs> we need to know. Get out of that hospital and get better. We're auditioning new singers. Oh, oh my God. Right, so um, we're going to finish soon, Dave. So I'll just run through a few more I've got here, oh. which are quite good. Uh, so do you know why Glenn Matlock was kicked out of the Sex Pistols? 
Uh, Two reasons. Because I, I watched that whole uh, thing about the set. Oh, yeah. He was... Glenn Matlock, right? The thing with Glenn Matlock was he actually was the one person who could play an instrument in the band. <laughs> he was actually a decent bass player, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. You know? Maybe that was the real reason, but... I think that was it. I no, think... well... Well, it could be part of it, but the reasons were that he liked the Beatles ah. and he was also ah. washing his feet too frequently. Ah. He was too clean. It just pissed off the other members. It's... Fucking Glenn's washing his feet again. It's unbelievable, isn't it? That is great to watch that that, that documentary because I didn't realise that... Uh... Oh, God, what's his name? What's his name? The guitarist... Um... Is it Mick Steve, Jones? Uh, Steve Jones. Steve Jones, not Mick Jones. Mick Jones was in the Clash, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. But Steve Jones, right, couldn't play guitar for shit. Couldn't play guitar at all. He started off as like, almost like the front man, didn't he? And he wasn't any good at it. Yeah. He got stage fright. And he taught That's himself right, yeah. guitar. Yeah. Steve Jones taught himself guitar and then came up with these, like, pretty historic licks. You know, with the, it's yeah. a mad one. That really, but Matlock was the one who, who was a decent musician, he actually could play. Mm-hmm. You know, and they even considered there was even wasn't there even a consideration of Chrissy Hind joining the band at some point? Because Possibly. she, I mean, she was she was obviously about them, wasn't she? She, she was she about go out with one of them, she was part of all that scene because she it, worked, yeah, she was, yeah, she worked in Malcolm McDowell's shop, didn't she? And everything. Yeah, yeah, but she was quite a decent musician and she was writing songs back then. Yeah, you know, the music world's a strange That's world. it. Didn't you just used to love that BBC Two show, Rock Family Trees, Dave? Oh, I love that. That is amazing. That, that is amazing. That again. The, all the links are brilliant, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. You know, get people like Bill Bruford, who's paid for, like, loads of... Di- play drums for, like, loads of different bands. I mean, what a drummer Bill Bruford is. Acey as well. He, exactly. Was yeah, in absolutely. Right, Dave, right. we promised uh, a Marquis Smith story, so... Oh, yes. I think we did mention this once on the pod before, is that Mark Riley of Mark and Lard fame got fired from the fall for dancing to Deep Purple. Horrified <laughs> 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 Marky Smith, who also oh, fired a sound engineer for eating salad. <laughs> Can I tell you a story about Marky Smith? This is yeah. great. When I first started recording music, I was at a place called Twilight Sound Studios in Salford. And uh, it was a great place. It was a great place to sort of cut your teeth and went in there and recorded songs, and it was brilliant. But they had, they had Marky Smith come in, and um, they didn't know <laughs> the guy who ran the place. He didn't know who he was. He really hadn't got a clue yeah. who Marky Smith was. But I remember going in like a few days later. He said, I've had this fella, Mark E. Smith, from the band The Fall. I don't know who he is. I said, oh, yeah, 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 I, I, I've heard of him. He's, yeah, he's quite, got quite a reputation in Manchester. He goes, I said, he's a fucking knobhead. <laughs> I said, and I, I was so close to it. I know he was paying for the session to come in, in here and record his songs. But he was doing my fucking heading. I said, why? What, what did he do? What was the matter? <laughs> Constantly, all the time, going, let's do it again, cocker. Let's do it again, cocker. He just kept calling him cocker all day. I'm not happy with that, cocker. Let's go again, cocker. 
Uh, I met him once in the uh, in the Roadhouse in town. Do you remember the Roadhouse near yeah. near Steve Powell's place? Yeah. <laughs> Steve's. And uh, yeah, yeah, he was uh, pissed off his face. Yeah, what can I tell you? <laughs> Did you know where the story of Andy Rourke, how he left the Smiths? Well, I can't believe you haven't mentioned the Smiths. Talk about acrimony there. Mm, Mike yeah. Joyce, Mike Joyce's lawsuit against Morrissey and Marr. Yeah. But go on. I, well, I mean, I've heard that Andy Rourke was doing a lot of heroin, so this might have something yeah, to do with it. Yeah, he but really did. Rourke said that he got a postcard from Morrissey, which just said, Andy Rourke has left the Smiths. <laughs> That's brilliant. Morrissey completely denies this and said, oh, well, if that's true, well, show me the postcard. But Rourke said, well, my ex-wife has got it. He said, I left in a hurry and I couldn't take everything with me. So she must have it somewhere. But he insists that that's the truth. But of course, Lee, I, I have, um, I have uh, told you before now what I believe to be the real reason that the Smiths split yeah. up. She's a fucking bombshell of a reason. <laughs> but unfortunately... You're not allowed to say. Well, I could say, but we might have. We might have. No, Dave, we don't want Morrissey suing us. Uh, no, he's the last person. Didn't the, ju- the judge send... Or Mike Joyce. Of- yeah, exactly. <laughs> I could tell you. And again, I could... Well, it did concern Mike Joyce. And I could tell you a thing or two about Mike Joyce as well. But... Yeah. The judge said horrible things about Morrissey, didn't he? He just basically yeah, said he was a of, horrible, sort of side with Morrissey. vile man. He said so, he was yeah. truculent, didn't he? Yeah, he said he was truculent, yeah. I mean, it is interesting about why they split up, because no one seems to agree. Do you know something? As years go by, I've kind of got more time for Morrissey's reasons, for Morrissey's thought process. And mm. I think that, I, you know what? kind of think Johnny Marr's a bit of a spineless cunt, really, to be honest. Well, that's what Morrissey says. He says Marr just wanted to please everybody, which... You can see that with him. ...pleasing nobody. Do you know what? When you see when you watch him perform live, he's a great guitarist and everything, but he's so fake. He's so fucking fake, Johnny Marr, the way he throws right. shapes and everything. He tries to be a rock and roll star on stage. Yeah, it's not really. He's a great guitar player. You know, he's better when he just. Yeah, I've seen him live actually. I had to leave and during we, the we, game. You know, me and the missus, we were watching it, and Jackie was brilliant. What she said, she said, "He's dead fake, isn't he? He's dead fake. It's not real. He's not really. He's not really doing it. You know. Yeah. All Jagger's fucking shenanigans and all his bullshit. Shag, Jagger's the real deal, right? On stage yeah. as a frontman, as a as a frontman of a band he's got the swagger he's got it because he's he's kind of an individual he does it his way johnny marr is the epitome of somebody who he's kind of doing it by the numbers you know swinging the arm right he does a bit of pete townsend he does a bit of the spread out legs he goes hey yeah great guys yeah he's almost like he's almost a bit like cliff richard (laughs) that's what he's like he's a bit like cliff on stage it's it's kind of false. There's a kind of falsity about his performance yeah. on stage. So, yeah, what yeah. Morrissey said after the court case with Joyce and Rourke, he was quite poetic. 
you know, unsurprisingly for Morrissey. He said, uh, he said, the Smiths were a beautiful thing and Johnny left it and Mike has destroyed it. He got a million, didn't he, Mike Joyce? Yeah. And sadly and tragically, really, is that Andy Rourke got cold feet, didn't he? And he settled for like something like 70,000. Yeah. I think Andy Rourke was an innocent. I mean, I got that impression speak. Mike Joyce would speak when he spoke to me for that period of time when I knew Mike Joyce. He spoke to me like Andy was a kind of innocent. And he kind of like jovially took the piss out of him a bit. You know, say, oh, I saw I saw Andy the other day. And, oh, he's got this girlfriend. She's so young and all this, which I thought was fucking pot calling kettle black. You know, <laughs> but I won't go into any details. Details you already know. I've told you, mate, but yeah. I'm not going to go publicly. <laughs> But yeah, it, we're, not, you know, we're not talking yew tree, though, are we? I'll be, no, no, it's not new yew tree, but it's, yeah, it's getting close. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, meeting him, he's like an overgrown kid. And mm. it's understandable, really, you know, because he's lived a very different life, hasn't he? And he's kind of constantly trying to promote himself in that way because of who, he, who he's been, who he is. Which I, is think kind of he also, I think they also got as well as the million he got, didn't he get awarded like 25% of future royalties? Yeah, I think he did. I mean, he did a like, massive amount. I mean, I mean Mike just did a thing for the other members of the band. Mm-hmm. But to be honest with you, I totally understand where, <laughs> where Morrissey's coming from. Because the reality is that Morrissey was being honest, saying, look, you know, we're the Smiths. Yeah. We are the Smiths. I write all these very very evocative lyrics that have charmed a generation right and johnny writes these really really lovely jangly guitar melodies right we're the smiths they have come along you so easily could get i know andy rock randy rock was a lovely bass player but there's loads of fucking great bass players and there's loads of great drummers right when you're in that position, when you're in that position of success, they could have quite easily, after two years, just like a lot of the heavy metal bands did and the rock bands did, say, right, see you, you two, goodbye, go on. You can tell your stories about being in the Smiths in the pub, and you can form your own little bands. You mm-hmm. can call yourself Smiths too, or whatever you want to do, but we're the Smiths because we the own Smiths. the intellectual property of the material. We came up with all the ideas and the understanding of what this band is about. Yeah. But I think the way it was done, the contract was signed just by Morrissey and Moore, wasn't it? So when they signed with Rough Trade, I think it was, only Morrissey and Moore went down to London to sign. And they basically said, oh, they just needed two of our signatures. But that made them legally the Smiths, didn't it? Yeah. So it was seen as a bit underhand, that. Like you say, you can see it from their point of view. They are thinking, well, the, we are the, they we are are the, the main guys, these two. They are the Smiths. And, and, and I think this was a ride. And I think taking it to court, I mean, I, I, quite rightly, I think that Morrissey should feel pissed off about what happened. Because mm. ultimately, there was two of them that signed the contract. They held all the intellectual properties for the material and the ideas. There's no way, I'm sorry. But I know Mike Joyce. There's no way he would have come up with any of that. Not a <laughs> fucking chance. Not yeah. a chance. This is the man who, when he came in the brick house, went, Mike Joyce in the house! Mike Joyce in the area! <laughs> <laughs> Do 
He got it, you know. A bit like Clint Boone when I saw him. Yeah, Clint Boone's the same. Full of shit. No original ideas. I haven't got a fucking clue. They're just on a gravy fucking train. They're jumping on a gravy train. They haven't got it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, listen. You kept shouting Boone Army when I saw him. Don't get even get me started about these spiral carpets. Jesus Christ. I mean, the luckiest garage band who ever fucking lived. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, it's really tenuous, isn't it? I'm reading here that the case was more about performance and recording royalties, which... Well, that's fair enough. So, say, Morris and Mark took 40% each, which left Joyce and Rourke with just 10%. You know, they did contribute a quarter each to the performance and the recording. So, on the face of it... Yeah, maybe that's a bit... A a little bit unfair. Yeah, that's swinging, to be honest. That is fucking swinging, because it is a performance. And to be fair, Monday... Very much to be fair, Andy Rourke, you know, with his bass lines, offered some, you know, he, he played some great bass lines, mm-hmm. you know. I don't want to sound like I'm being dismissive of Joyce. He's, in, he's not a bad drummer at all, you know, but he's not, you know. Yeah. He's drumming, he's drumming is proficient, let's put it that way. <clears throat> Performance wise, yes, they've got a big leg to stand on. So fair enough. But yeah, it's a bit like when, uh, Tony McCarroll got kicked out of Oasis. Was it because he was yeah. a United fan? He had something to do with it. I remember Liam saying something along that line. But he took them to court and he got a million quid, didn't he? Wow. He was I mean, fucking delighted with that. That's fucking crazy, isn't it? And again, there, there's really only... I mean, there's a lot of work. With, I mean, I can see that the people that were in the bands, they did work very hard. They work very hard because Noel was driving them to it. And to oh, someone's giving them a job, aren't they? I suppose you could look at someone's it. Someone's giving them a job. This is the thing. It's crazy, really. So lucky. Because I say that because I know I've I know of and I've worked with so many really great musicians that mm. these people. I don't want to use the word chancer, but I'm really tempted to say it because. There are so many great musicians about, really yeah. good musicians, but there aren't that many kind of inventors, creators. It's creators yeah. what it's all about, yeah. you know. And that's why I, I'm on the side of the creator, really. Even yeah, I'm sort of swaying back to Morrissey and Marr on this because I suppose 10% of what they created performing it's still a lot of money isn't it? it's a lot of money it's a lot more than they probably would have made on their own if they didn't have oh without a shadow of a doubt this is the thing it's difficult isn't it because i can see from a point of view of them being a band and united together and always on the covers and all the photographs and the press and everything and you know mike joyce when he was young had a real kind of look that really suited you know mm. uh it's difficult to some degree, but ultimately, what they ended up making out of it from a legacy point of view is probably an awful lot more than if they just hired some, had some guns for hire, a session yeah, place. Yeah, well, Mike Joyce was a name, wasn't he? And you, and you hired him on the back of that. Exactly. And so, pissed off uh, Martin Coo at the same time. Yeah, well, yeah, he did. He pissed off Martin. You know, I remember being true. in the car when he rang you, Dave. But the ultimate thing is, yeah, this is the thing, and the probably frustrating thing with Ma- with Martin. I won't was, put this I, on, don't worry. No, you can do as well, because it's all water on the bridge with me and Martin now. 
And of course, you were with me at the time when we were having that bloody rather difficult conversation. But the thing is, and I can see Martin's frustration, that Mike was a bigger name, but Martin had actually been a creator. His yeah. success was partly, a large part, down to him and him alone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But Mike, Mike was a member of this amazing band, but he wasn't the person that drove it. It was mainly a guy called Morrissey and another guy called Mark. But look at it. Look at the solo career. Look at how successful Morrissey's solo career is compared to everybody else's. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, it's interesting that when Morrissey embarked on his solo career, that his band members were Joyce and Rourke yeah. for the first few albums, I believe. Yeah. But he wanted, he just looked like, no, this is my, this is my show now. Because he was, the other thing is, Lee, of course, of course, it's the power of personality, isn't it? The mm. power of personality. And Morrissey is a great example. And Roger Waters is a great example. And, you know, Richie Blackmore, Ian Anderson, these people. And Ian Anderson's another great example. Ian Anderson, he was Jethro Tull. Let's be honest, he was Jethro yeah. Tull. You could argue Martin Barr to some degree as well. But the reality is, it's Jethro Tull. So he, it's, it's Ian Anderson. And he would say, right, OK, you're gone. New one in. And then mm. you've got, of course, you've got the likes of um, Dilly Dan with Donald Fagan and co. And Walter. They, um, Don and Walter, they ran the show. They were the guys behind it. There's so many examples like that in music. Do democracies work better in bands or do you need a dictator or a couple of oh, dictators and I think it's very hard yeah this whole fucking you know you, you know, very rarely whole... get a band where every yeah. band member contributes that's why chumba wumba only had one hit mate <laughs> <laughs> because they they saw themselves as a communist collective didn't they or something chumba wumba yeah. but they still managed to have this massive hit but it's the reality is there. There's one person in particular who's making loads of money off that song. Mm. You have a large drink, I have a side drink. You know, and that's <laughs> what often ends up splitting bands, isn't it? You know, the resentments that one's making more than the other. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the one of the most um, decent people in a band is Damon Albarn. He set out his stall to split it. Um, for it to be a four-way split with the band. Yeah. And yeah. the reality is he's by far the biggest driving force of that band, without doubt. Do you think? Is he not equally Coxon? No, not really. I mean, Greg, the thing with Graham Coxon is he's a really good guitar player, I think. Mm. He's great. And there's always like, there's always like, if you look at the credits of the song, it'll be like, da 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 you know, it'll say, Alban Coxon, dunno. But... You just look at you look at what album's done with gorillas and stuff and all the other things it's done. He's a natural born songwriter, isn't he? Really. Mm. And maybe I'm wrong. And perhaps Graham Coxon has more involvement than I think. But I do think I do think Damon is the strongest driving force, but he's got a great affection for them as a four piece. I might be wrong on that. But yeah. uh, but, well, you know, it's very quickly to say, you know, I, I watched something I saw recently was David Byrne's American uh, Utopia, which is an amazing, like, live show, one-man show. And when you see someone like David Byrne with that kind of, like, ingenuity, 
and uh, drive yeah. from an intellectual point of view. It's amazing. If you get a chance to see it, Lee, have a look at it. It's called American Utopia by and David Byrne, and it's kind of like this show where they dance and they sing. He's got this incredible band with him and stuff. But that is obviously... Is the one with a grey background? The grey background. They're all wearing grey suits. Yeah, and you and, don't. there's no musicians on stage. Uh, but the truth is they are. There's, the oh, musicians are there. What there is is there's no equipment because everything's on radio mics. So they've got percussion, you've got a guitar, you've got drums, you've got bass, mm. you've got keyboard. They're all strapped onto them in these grey suits. They're all doing these like dance moves. It's incredibly choreographed. I have seen bits of that, actually. It is yeah. phenomenal, right? And it's all done live. It's hard to believe it's live. You're kind of thinking, is this all bullshit? Yeah. Apparently, it's totally live, right? The work that's gone into it is phenomenal. But that is obviously really the vision of one person. Mm. And this is the interesting thing is, is that there's a lot of pe- there's a lot of people out there who've become craftsmen with their instrument but the complication in music is there's people who are craftsmen with their instrument and there's people who conceptualize and create yeah and creativity is is the most important thing surely yeah. well that was Roger that- Waters argument wasn't it that well, I he think it- is the creator and he is isn't he? he he deserves to be the one that says what Pink Floyd do. It's hard to argue that, that, isn't it? That's, it, is, it is an argument, you know, and we discussed this on the Gilmore and Waters pod, didn't we, who, who was we really indeed. right there, and I think we did yeah, yeah. sort of come down on the side of him. Because yeah. let's be honestly, Division Bell, right, it ain't Dark Side of the Moon, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no. No, 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 not at all. And that's the thing, isn't it? Completely different bands i think you know the gilmore led era completely different they really are but that you know the waters period is totally fascinating to Mm. you know my son loves it i mean he loves dark sadman and wish you were here and stuff he's fascinated by it and that's because it has a some it has something extra going on there yeah well that was a collaboration that was the last real collaboration wasn't it between all four members and because sure. that got so big yeah, yeah they got lazy they started getting into drugs and yeah stuff. you know i'm sure they were into drugs before but and i think cocaine usage went up and that and roger was the only one really producing the stuff but even so, it's it's the Roger element because I don't think I just don't think without Roger pushing forward to Division Bell, it's not there, is it? No, no. It's the Roger element that's missing. Yeah. So yeah. Dave Gilmore and Nick, Dave and Nick, great, and rehiring Rick. This is the other thing. They didn't even re- remake Rick a member of the band. No, they still no. rehired him. You know, so it became such a business. And the, but they didn't have they didn't have that kind of quasi intellectual element that Roger brought to the band. That's the thing in it, mate. That's the thing. Do you know what I'm really glad about tonight? We didn't end up talking about Fleetwood fucking Mac. No, because there's there's a band that I just can't stand them to be honest. <laughs> What's great about Fleetwood Mac is there's never really been harmony ever. Ever. So. 
you know, you'd have to, no, I, I tell like, have to go like on for hours talking about exactly. Their I like, disagreements. I really like Fleetwood Mac when it was Peter mm. Green's Fleetwood Mac. I mm. like the early days, but I can't. I've not got a lot of time for all the, all the fucking Lindsay Buckingham and fucking yeah. <laughs> all the shagging around and fucking. Oh, and Stevie Nicks could go fucking shoot cocaine up her arse and fuck off. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun tonight, Liam. Really. Yeah, enjoyed. yeah, and it's it's good to have a laugh because we've been doing some yeah, quite been heavy, heavy topics we? recently, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, I think we're both coming to it tonight with a conscious idea of like having a bit of fun. Yeah. Taking this, taking the piss of it. Because yeah. it's it's hard to do that with thermonuclear war. But yeah. <laughs> so I'll just but I'll think... just leave you a couple of other stories, a couple of other sackings. So Pearl Jam fired the drummer, Dave oh, Abrazizi, yeah. because he was too positive. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently he wasn't downbeat enough. Fantastic. And this stemmed from him enjoying doing interviews and media work. <laughs> Didn't fit in. And Dan Spitz, this is a good one, Dan Spitz got kicked out of Anthrax for wearing a Tweety Pie t-shirt in a video. <laughs> That's brilliant. Now, what we should say about this is that a lot of the stories we come up with uh, may be disputed. You know, there's always two, three sides to a story. And they're not necessarily the actual point of the sacking, but they are the catalyst. Yes. Sowed the seed of doubt in the other band members' heads, you know, thinking this guy's not right. Yeah, it's the niggling irritation that builds other things. Fantastic. We'll have to do this again because there's yeah. loads of circumstances, I'm sure. It's a fascinating topic. And yeah. bands are fascinating because it's yeah. about the human race, isn't it? It's about human yeah. beings. And musicians, trust me, musicians are freaks as well. <laughs> yeah. So it's full of weird quirks, full of backstabbing and whispers in ears. I mean, that's it for me. I've had loads of whispering in my ear about this, that and the other. I'm not sure about them. We need to do this. It's like I, Claudius, speeding a band. It's it is, yeah. Full of espionage and sabotage. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed it tonight. And if you've got any interesting stories about bands, then please let us know. Until next time, goodbye. Rock on! What was it uh, Dave Nice used to do? Yeah. When he put Batman Turner Overdrive on. <laughs> what did he say? Yeah, fantastic. Let's rock. Let's rock. Do a lot of good work for charity. Winter.